Wow. Oh, hey there. My name's Ross, and I'm a bit of a nerd for all things nature. So a while ago, I started a passion project called well, nerdy about nature. It began as social media videos sharing cool fun facts and tidbits of wisdom about the natural world and has since evolved in this podcast that you're tuning into here. This project serves as a means to inspire, educate, and engage folks with the outdoor world so that we can all become better stewards of it and so that we can all work together to create a more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and just future for each and every one of us in this world that we all share. Because nature, it's pretty dang neat, you know? I think we should keep it that way. So come on, let's go get nerdy about nature. Walk with me, we're gonna check out some really cool trees. We're gonna hang around and talk about all those things in nature that we can't live without. Let's go get nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature. Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, baby. Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature. Come on, let's get nerdy about nature. What is up, my fellow nerds? Welcome, everybody, to the Nerdy About Nature podcast. My name is Ross. I'm your host, and I'm currently sitting in a forest. Um, I would naturally say that it's an old-growth forest, um, purely because there's a couple old-growth uh, big western red cedars over there, a cool, really, really cool candelabra top, a couple really old hemlocks, which you don't see very often around here. And these trees are certainly over 250 years old, yet at the same time, I'm also like within the town limits of the town of... I'm on an old logging road, which you can see, um, you know, we've got some alders sprouting up behind me here, some successional species trying to reclaim this piece of land. And that leads to, you know, a clear-cut development area where there's going to be houses in a few years. So, yes, this is a forest. Is it an old-growth forest? Is it an intact old-growth forest ecosystem? Does it perform all the ecological functions that an old-growth forest is supposed to? Uh, does it contain the level of biodiversity that this area naturally would have had prior to Western human engagement? You know, I don't know. These are all really deep questions, um, and it leads me into the conversation I had with today's guest, because today's guest, she's kind of a big deal, um, Dr. Rachel Holt. Now, if you're not familiar with that name, Rachel is an ecologist based out of Nelson, British Columbia, and she's one of three authors, along with Karen Price and Dave Doss, of a really monumental report that came out in 2020 called BC's Last Stand for Biodiversity. Now, hopefully that rings some bells because this report was a massive thing when it came out. It was huge, incredibly impactful, an independently produced research paper, peer-reviewed, that basically detailed the dire situation we're in here in British Columbia with the lack of remaining old-growth forests. Um, you know, lack of intact old growth forest, uh, what it means, why that's a big deal, and, and kind of the future that that's going to create for us. Um, now, these calculations that they did, it also went to be contributed to and helped aid the um, Old Growth Strategic Review, which was a government document written by Al Gorley and Gary Merkel that kind of outlined the state of forests in British Columbia and what the province needs to do moving forward in order to preserve them and protect them, as well as the industry, um, and whether or not you know they're actually taking those recommendations. Uh, Rachel and I are going to talk about that, so uh, stay tuned. But basically, I'm just incredibly stoked, humbled, and honored to have been able to talk to Rachel because, you know, I don't get starstruck very often, and she's definitely one of those people where I was like, whoa, <laughs> you're a big deal. So, uh, pretty cool. 
Now, outside of this whole nerdy about nature thing, um, I'm actually an independent filmmaker. So I had originally met up with Rachel to record some video interviews for SAFT, which is the Science Alliance for Forestry Transformation. Great organization there. Highly recommend you all check it out. Some heavy hitters on that team. Um, so when Rachel and I finally got around to recording this podcast, it was after we had done all that SAFT stuff. Um, it was the end of the day. We were both tired, thirsty, hungry, a little hangry, and we had limited time because Rachel had prior commitments. So um, you know, we had literally been talking about this stuff all day, so we might seem a little bit burnt out. And a lot of this conversation might seem a little bit abrupt if you were to just jump into it. So what I've decided to do is I've compiled some of those interviews from that SAFT interview, um, some highlights here that I'm going to play before our conversation, which is just going to give you a background on all these issues and help um, make that conversation a little bit easier to get into. So let's hear what she has to say. So British Columbia is this amazing place. It's incredibly biodiverse in the, in the world. It's um, because of the complexity of the topography and the closeness to the sea, but also continental. It has this incredible range of ecosystems. So it's extremely biodiverse. And that means there's many, many species all interacting with each other. There is uh, on the order of uh, a British Columbia province report talks about there being about 50,000 species in the province only of around 4,000 of which we have any sense of the conservation status of. Um, and every time we look somewhere, if we look into the canopy of a single old growth tree, we find new species, we find new mites, we find new spiders. And when we look into the soil, we find an increasing diversity of um, soil organisms of many different kinds, hundreds of species of soil mycorrhiza, for example. All of these things, they do something in the ecosystem. And some of them are really obvious, like beavers are ecosystem engineers, or uh, sea otters are kelp engineers, and they create ecosystem diversity. Many species, we don't even know what they do. And so that's why it's really important to have that biodiversity so that there's some redundancy in the system. All of those things do something and they interact together. And when we lose them, um, we either see change, we lose all the salmon, or we don't see the change immediately and um, the system can potentially be unraveling and we don't even know until something doesn't work anymore. Healthy land and water or healthy ecosystems um, is a place where all the natural biodiversity that exists there is uh, present in its natural form and distribution and where all the interactions between all those species still happen and where all the functions uh, that happen from that ecosystem can also function. So those are, those are healthy ecosystems. And healthy ecosystems are also something that's, that are resilient. They are um, resilient to the stress and they, they can maintain themselves um, when stressed and they can bounce back or they can adapt to stress over time. So it's really important that there is the full complement of species and distribution and that the system is uh, able to be robust to, to stresses. So a healthy ecosystem does many things. Uh, at the most basic level, it provides all the habitat for all the species that uh, we know and love and those that we don't know and we don't yet love. No, so the elk and the moose and the, the obvious things, the bears, the caribou. Um, so uh, there has to be habitat for those things, but those things also need to move and everything moves. Even things that are stationary, they, they, they actually move in landscapes, particularly with climate, we're gonna need more movability within our landscape. So uh, a functioning ecosystem allows connectivity between uh, areas at many different scales from whole landscapes to within watersheds um, to just within site levels. Um, 
ecosystems, healthy ecosystems, they filter the water, they keep the water cool, that's a huge one. Um, they store carbon, they create soil, well, they create, they use the energy of the sun and create nutrients and then move nutrients around between bears and salmon and fungus and this incredible diverse interaction of, of ecosystems. All these things and many more that we do not understand. And that's a huge piece of managing for ecosystem health is understanding that there is much more diversity than we will ever understand. So British Columbia is 95 million hectares about half of which, about 50 million hectares of which are forested ecosystems. It's a, we are a system of forests, many diverse different types of forests. Our forest management, the industrial forest management of the last 120, 140 years, shorter in some places, what it's done is it's taken the really complex older forests and truncated them. It, it, we log old forests or primary forests and then turn them into second growth and now third growth plantation forests, and those forests are vastly more simple uh, than their original forests. So we have simplified the forest landscape at all scales, from the big scale down to the smallest cutlock level. Um, so we, we've lost species diversity. When you harvest, you lose the species that are on the ground um, for some period of time. And yes, forests regenerate, but it's really the structural complexity that has disappeared in our historic approach to forest management. You know, in the big picture, um, simplified forests, which is what we have created through forest management in the last century of industrial forestry, simplified forests have lost a significant amount of their biodiversity and of their ecosystem functioning. And that is the key thing that we need to undo if we want to manage for healthy ecosystems going forward. At the broad scale, we, set, we have a set of protected areas and they very well represent the high elevation and lower productivity forest ecosystems in the province. And they extremely poorly represent the higher productivity and the low elevation ecosystems in the province. So that is a significant problem up front of having a lack of core representation um, in protected areas. Um, so, uh, but at the policy level within the Within the forested land base, um, we have talked about managing for ecosystem health for a long time. So in the in the mid uh, '90s, there was policy uh, to set up um, old growth protection and manage for connectivity across landscapes, manage for mature forests in order to maintain a future supply of old forests. Um, there was a lot of policy put together to to do that work. Um, it was relatively weak from an ecological perspective at that time, but it was certainly in the right direction. And a lot of that work was never implemented. And so that, that has really led now to a forested landscape that you can drive, and I just did, having spent uh, time both in the inland temperate rainforest and on the coastal temperate rainforest, but across the province, um, endless hours of driving through uh, dense, second growth forest that is lacking in structure, that is lacking in riparian protection, that doesn't provide habitat for anything, that doesn't have any understory, that has cut out the um, habitat components uh, across entire valleys. And 
from that perspective, we're managing very, we've done a really poor job of managing for ecosystem health. Um, that has implications to all the species and, and to all those functions that, that, uh, that I talked about. Um, so ecologists have known that we need to do this for forever, for a long time, um, that we need to keep that structure in place at all scales. And um, the recent old growth strategic review, the uh, Gawley Merkel report um, commissioned by uh, the provincial government, uh, it came to the same conclusion and said that we had been for too long managing with a focus on timber and that we needed to really shift that and manage instead for a focus on ecosystem health. British Columbia is, an, is a very interesting place. It's very green. It looks green, but with a little bit of um, understanding of different shades of green, what, you, what I see when I drive through uh, or fly over the province or look at satellite imagery is I see that there are old growth forests remaining, um, but they tend to be at high elevation or on low productivity sites. There is very, very little low elevation old growth remaining anywhere in British Columbia. And um, what, is, what has taken its place is um, a, uh, a landscape that is full of second and third growth forests that have, are usually dark, have very little understory in them, um, that don't maintain, that have lost a significant proportion of their soil, um, that have lost a lot of their ability to perform the functions that we are talking, that we, you know, that we are understanding to be key to ecosystem health. And although we had talked about managing in this way in the 90s, the reason that that never got implemented properly, and I was part of some of those conversations early on, and I, I know the intention was to do a good job and switch, switch the, the focus and manage the forest better. We didn't implement them because we hit not a, not a glass ceiling, but a timber supply cap ceiling. Um, what that means was, although the intention was to do a good job, um, the, the people who ran the forestry world were in charge and said, well, you can do this, but only if it is done within a 4%, 4.1% timber supply cap. So you can impact the productive forest land base by 4.1%. That means you can have as much of the forest as you like that we don't want to log. But of the productive forest that we do want to log, we'll have 4% of it managed for nature. And when there's an argument about whether we should be managing for 50% or 30% or 70% for nature, um, we have to remember that here in British Columbia, we're managing at around 4%. That is what we've designated to maintain uh, the natural biodiversity. And um, there was another 1% that we managed, that we allowed uh, to impact timber supply uh, to manage for all the identified wildlife um, that was in a, a separate strategy. And so, so the fundamental problem is that although we know what to do and we have been attempting to implement these strategies, we always have to implement them within this timber supply cap. So that means we put aside areas that we don't want to log. And when we are gonna put something aside, we put it in a place where we weren't going to log to a maximum of about 5% of the productive forest land base because there's a 4.1% cap for this old growth protection and then there's a 1% cap for 
managing for habitat for everything else. And that has limited our ability to maintain ecosystem health in the province. Well, the Old Growth Strategic Review used the term paradigm shift. And what they talked about is, uh, I think, really central. It's shifting our relationship with nature. Uh, it is changing how we view the forests and what the forests give us. Right now, in policy, the primary thing, the only thing that we directly manage for is timber supply. And what we have to do is switch it and think about all the other values and species that the forest provides. That is what a paradigm shift is. So it's, it's a mental framework. And frankly, without that mental framework, um, we, we will fail at this task. We have to appreciate the forest for the other values. Otherwise, we're always um, trying to, trying to ha make something happen when the people on the ground don't believe in it or understand in it. And, and we will fail unless there's that broader paradigm shift. Um, there's a whole bunch of kind of crazy policy things that exist out there that uh, are hard to believe even exist. But um, for instance, the current law says that we're going to maintain water. We're going to maintain cultural values. We're going to maintain the biodiversity. We're going to maintain the soil. We're going to do all of these things without unduly impacting the timber supply of the province. Those are the current written words. And unless we take that off, Unless we shift that, we, we need to scratch it out right now in the policy. It, that would have no actual direct impact, is reducing the, removing the words. But what it would do is it would allow then an ability to implement a management regime that actually put ecosystem health first. Um, we have clauses that say you can, you can maintain your old growth uh, for 45% of the province is designated low biodiversity. And in those places, you can draw down the old forest target to around 3%. Uh, it differs ever so slightly in different ecosystems. And you can manage for old growth 250 years into the future. You can log today's thousand year old forest, set it aside and say it's your old growth management area for the future. That's crazy speak. That makes no sense. And that clearly will not get us through uh, into a resilient ecosystem uh, world. So that needs to change. We need to put more science-based targets in place. Um, all of these things are actually talked about in the old growth strategic review. So what we actually need to do is full on um, get that and, and, and implement it. Um, we, need to, we need to prioritize ecosystem health. And um, so while taking away the things that currently limit our ability to manage for ecosystem health, we actually need to really get on and quickly put in place an ecosystem health act that um, forces us to manage at multiple scales to maintain all these ecosystem function and make sure that we measure those and actually do, do it right. Um, as I said, we, we know how to do this. We just have not got on with doing it. Wow, a lot of great facts, stats, percentages, a lot of really great info there that takes a bit to soak in and absorb. So maybe before we jump into this conversation that I had with Rachel, let's just all take a moment here and breathe, you know? 
Let that soak in. And actually, this is a perfect time to jump in, if I may, and remind you all that Nerdy About Nature is an independently funded passion project that relies solely on support from folks just like yourself. So if you're enjoying these podcasts and all the fun educational video content that I put out all over social media, you can help fund their production by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature. Of course, you can do it, you know, not right now, but after this podcast. I wouldn't want to, you know, interrupt your your listening to any really great conversations. Um which, you know, speaking of which, maybe it's about time we just quit lollygagging. Let's, let's get into this conversation here with Rachel. Here we go. So, first off, thank you for coming to the podcast. I'm super stoked to have you here. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. Um, would you like to start by introducing yourself, who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Rachel Holt. Uh, my son calls me Dr. Rachel Holt because I make him. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm an ecologist. I've lived in British Columbia for uh, most of my life, which is strange because I grew up in the north of England. But um, yeah, I've lived in in the forests of, of BC for the last 30 years and in Nelson for the last 25. And I run a little uh, consulting company that is just me, uh, Viridian Ecological Consulting. And uh, I've worked on forests and forest management issues and BC for that time. Nice. I didn't realize that you were the one behind Viridian. I've heard of Viridian. Yeah, that's me. Um, So you're from Northern England. How did you get involved in British Columbia and forests in the first place? Where did you first fall in love with forests? Um, Well, it wasn't in England because there isn't much for forests there. You know, I grew up in a place where the original forests were gone 400 years ago. You know, the last wolf was shot there about that length of time ago and they were forever talking about uh putting those things back and it's obviously really hard um i grew up in a cultural landscape which i really do love and um but um i'm an ecologist and so i had done a zoology and plant science degree there and i was interested in going somewhere else so i kind of scoured around and i heard about british columbia and really the idea that there were massive old growth forests, uh, primary forests where seabirds nested in the tops of the trees. I mean, that's that's kind of crazy. Um, whales, bears, like ha- the idea for an ecologist uh, in this world to be in a place where the full ecosystem is intact in some places, that's pretty mind blowing. So the idea of, I was always interested in conservation and the idea of coming somewhere where there's the possibility of having a functional ecosystem um, mm. was incredibly exciting to me. Do you remember that first time you like came over and, and immerse yourself in an old growth forest? What was that like? Yeah, well, it was pretty amazing. You know, um, I guess I got to, uh, I kind of sat through my PhD at the School of Forestry at UBC and um, I was there in 92 and then in 93 uh, Clack What Sound happened so um, like kind of out of the blue without any uh, without without much context I, I came to listen to the debate about forests and, and I went and looked at some forests and honestly didn't know um, a huge amount about the the history and context um, at that time, but um, started to study the ecology and and I do remember going to the big forests and driving to um, out to the west coast and and going to Cathedral Grove and being you know blown away by the possibility. And at that point, I didn't 
understand the context and and didn't really you know have the big picture but um I was tempted to go home and and back to England at that point but realized that um there was something really important here in the province and that I should stay here and 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 work on it here because mm. it was super interesting and did you ever get out to Clickwat? I did during like the protests and everything I did I so- went there so, and that was right when you were starting your forestry degree. So you were kind of, you're a student of like that first generation of reform in a way. Uh, yeah. So I wasn't, uh, I was working on my PhD at that time, uh, more on landscape ecology. And I just happened to have a desk in the forestry department. And so I would listen to things that didn't make sense to me, like the idea that logging, um, ancient forests, really old forest, um, was sustainable. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a misnomer. It, ma- it makes no sense. It's not coming back. And of course, then I realized that that is the model. That is the, that's a success. The success from a forest management perspective. And I think that's part of the trouble that we have is, um, foresters are educated in the idea that it is a success to log all the old growth and turn it into a simplified managed forest and keep turning that over for however many rotations. That's the that's what they think their job is. And um, although I know that School of Forestry has somewhat changed, um, it hasn't radically changed because I talk to a lot of young foresters who still don't understand ecosystem complexity. And um, so, you know, I just came at this from a fresh and really felt that... Um, yeah, things didn't make a whole bunch of sense. And I, you know, at that time, the faculty of forestry was about maintaining the forest industry, uh, very much full on. And I come from a place where academia meant something different. And, uh, it was, it was a bit of a stark, uh, (laughs) it was a bit of a stark thing at first to get used to, to understand that that's how it worked here. Yeah. I mean, and very much still today, like forests are still managed for timber being the number one value. Yeah, they certainly are. And we haven't, you know, we're we're just on the cusp of thinking about carbon as something that we can put money on. Um, but we, we don't even, we don't value forests at this moment for, for their water supply i mean it's in, we're insane humans are quite insane how we think about the value of ecosystems and and, and we, again we've talked about this forever externalizing the costs and not doing full cost accounting and not putting value on on the things you know you you can't eat money right. um you can eat salmon but we're we've we've decimated salmon stocks it it is it it's taken me 30 years to understand how bad it really is <laughs> when i go and work with nations who literally their salmon are gone in their local creeks and you know it's a culmination of different things for sure um or bad management on the on the on the fishing end and really bad land management plus climate change you know all of the things are coming together but if we if we don't even if we can't value these forests for maintaining things as obvious as salmon, a huge economic wealth, a huge cultural wealth, a huge part of ecosystem functioning, um, we don't even we haven't even done that. Honestly, 
we don't even manage the forest well for timber. Like we're on first cut at this point and the loss of productivity as we go from primary growth forests through to second growth is phenomenal. The amount of soil that is lost. Like if we wanted to just grow trees, we're actually doing that badly. Right. And as far as quality of timber goes too, it goes, <coughs> there's so much like the second growth forests that are coming up today that are being harvested are such lower quality of timber. That's right. There, there's not even any value for them really overseas even. That's right. So how does it feel? I mean, so if you were over here back in the original like War of the Woods style, how does it feel that I've seen Fairy Creek ha kind of occur last year? And like for the first time in 30 years, we're having these like massive societal wide conversations about this subject again. How does it feel to kind of be at that same place 30 years later? Well, it's a little bit distressing. Um, mm. I will say, you know, we've had all of the, I, I feel like I've had the same conversation over and over again over this last time period. And, you know, we had an interesting, I think, a shift backwards. We were on the cusp of doing something different and talking about, you know, really developing value-added industry in the province back in the late 90s, uh, putting in real protection for ecosystems. We didn't use the words ecosystem health at that time, but there was definitely, a, you know, we need, to, we need to really shift how we're managing. We need to move away from clear-cutting. All of those things were right on the table back then. Um, and then we went back to the Dark Ages, consolidated tenure, um, moved back to spaghetti mills, moved away from the little mills and little towns, got rid of a pertinency, which meant that if your watershed was logged, at least you kept the wood <laughs> close to home. You know, all the little mills shut down. Now there's five majors um, who have the vast majority of the timber supply and um, think of value-added product as a two-by-four. What caused that kind of backslide to occur? Like if we were at a place when like the public, it's on the forefront, like people are talking about it, it's like on all the news coverage, it was the biggest act of civil disobedience at that time, 1993. Um, what caused that slow deterioration of those policies to go to slip back into like all that consolidation and everything you're talking about? Yeah, it's always hard to really put your finger on on these things. I mean, humans, we are, um, when whatever comes next looks back at us, they're going to say that they weren't really good at thinking ahead. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, it's mysterious to me because um, the, there are people out there who really work to Try and make this a jobs versus environment, a people versus nature argument. And it just isn't. And if we had any interest in both those things, any true interest, we wouldn't have taken the path that we did. And it becomes it comes about power. It becomes about consolidation of money and power. And then those people, those very few people have the lobby they have they have the voice of industry in quotes but they don't they have the voice of shareholders and um they are their interest is not the public interest at all and we had a government that thought that was more important and put in place you know got rid of red tape put gave everything over to industry making decisions and that wasn't good for jobs and it wasn't good for the environment. And uh, we absolutely have to get away from this dichotomy, the idea that um, 
you know, we absolutely need to move to to thinking about both ecosystem and human well-being, health as as and putting in places policies that actually foster both those things because they're they're very synergistic and the way we've gone is completely um, the opposite direction. And you know, this is the this is the global this is the global issue. Um, short-term decision making made my people in power. Um, you know, short-term profits over short-term long-term, profits over yeah. over maintaining a world that actually can maintain humans and the climate piece is. Um, I keep waiting for us to wake up. I I see, I see that there's been a shift um, in the conversation, um, but the conversation is not, not going to save us. The 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 rate and scale of climate uh, impacts already kill millions of people every year and um it's terrifying i'm i'm scared for my children i don't understand why people manage to be able to live on another on another planet in their minds and and not have that front and foremost in terms of you know keeping a healthy planet keeping healthy ecosystems putting those things first because you know we knew all of this in the 70s. Um, the Rio Biodiversity Summit was 30 years ago, which is kind of shocking. Um, and, you know, a whole, if you read the intros and the read those talks, I actually looked back at them just recently. Um, we said exactly the same things that we're saying now, and we haven't put in place the changes and most individual people want that to happen and frankly feel powerless people are always contacting me and saying well what can i do and i say i don't really know because contact your contact your mla well the mlas want the same thing the people that i talk to they want the same thing they want these changes too uh and yet somewhere there's somebody in a dark room um pulling strings and making sure things don't happen that that's what i see Hmm. Probably on a yacht, realistically. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> somewhere not else, in somewhere a, else. True enough. They're yeah. not in a dark room. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I think it's really important in noting that like y- you and like your colleagues are some of like the, the reasons why we're having this conversation again 30 years ago. Like um, if we can just circle back to the original uh, biodiversity in BC report, like the last stand for biodiversity, you're one of the main authors on that. That's a, kind of a big deal. You're kind of a celebrity. (laughs) But one of the things that I really love about that paper that you all did, and then the strategic review, of course, from Gorley and Merkel, is that you encompass that very inclusive nature in all of it. Yet, you know, it's like every page of that report, of both reports, um, kind of talk about the the need to bring in indigenous nations for decision making, the need to expand into value-added woodstocks, the need to expand into, you know, valuing timber or valuing our forests for uh, for values beyond timber, for cultural, eco- ecological, all these different values. Um, and it's always like a very inclusive, like we need to make this transition together. Yet industry continually takes that and spins it into that same age-old environmentalist versus loggers and putting the jobs factor into it like i guess what was your motive in creating that report and what what did you kind of expect or hope to accomplish and and has it well um i i it, it certainly got uh we didn't expect 
what happened to happen. I guess nobody ever does with those kinds of things. Um, I mean, literally, um, the old growth strategic review was uh, underway and um, COVID happened and uh, I didn't have any work to do. And I'd been deeply frustrated for the last 20 years that the province actually I've been on I've been on multiple old growth panels for the last 20 years as has Karen and Dave um, where the province is supposed to put out the reports on the status of of the forest and old growth and um, they never do they never release those reports so um, I had been looking at uh, pulling together a provincial database to do that work and um, happened to talk to Karen about it um, we, we met somewhere and, and mentioned it and and we thought, oh, yeah, we're both frustrated. Our our careers have kind of followed parallel lines. And so uh, we felt like there needed to be um, a good summary on the, of the state of the forest because we have watched as, poli- as weak policies have not been implemented and we've been very, very concerned uh, about the state, state of the forest. So, so we wrote the report with kind of no intention of... Um, it breaking out, but I think it really spoke to people. And I've, you know, it, it reflects what you see if you walk around with your eyes open or if you get in a plane and fly over British Columbia. You know, the rate of harvest is um, really has not declined, even though we've put in place parks and we've put in place all growth management areas and we've done these supposed things. Um, we've managed to put all those things in places that, um, really didn't protect the core of the forest. And it's really about flatland, low elevation forests, because those are the places that people like to log. It's where the big trees are. But it's also culturally um, where nations have often use the land primarily uh, and I say that because I've worked with lots of nations that's where the trails are often are um, it's where your moose wintering habitat is it's it's where your salmon streams are it's where the pr- productivity of the land is and so all that biodiversity all kind of congregates in the productive ecosystems and we have systematically not protected them so we produced the report um, we wanted to give some numbers to the old growth strategic review. And uh, we decided that um, we might as well put it together and release it as a more public document because we thought people would be interested. And, and we were pretty pretty surprised to see it take off. But I think it really speaks to the fact that people are increasingly concerned about uh, the state of the land again. Um, you know, we, we kind of veered off for 20 years where people were worried only about climate change and started to have markets and and grow their own food and now i've circled back to understanding that oh yeah we've really lost the plot uh, in terms of forest management well it's, it's pretty cyclical in that like it becomes a public issue like all these issues and it's in the newspaper for a couple months maybe and then it kind of dies down and something else takes the limelight and then eventually enough people stop talking about it that status quo just resumes yeah um, and we were talking earlier, we were making the joke about you, Karen, and Dave being kind of the, the dream team in a way, <laughs> being superheroes, having your own, like you each have your different strengths that were able to come together and communicate this so well. Um, yeah, I think it's it's just really cool to see uh, it being brought up again. How do you think, or what, what are the kind of like the next steps that you see occurring? Um, and what are you like fearful of not occurring 
Like, do you think we're we're kind of going down that same slippery slope well, of yeah. now that Fairy Creek's in a way um, fallen out of the the media limelight and yeah, it's I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I think having hope and then having it removed is is almost worse than not having hope. So mm. that's one thing that has been a kind of a driving thing for me. Um, I hear more and more around climate and forests um, that we are going to do things differently. And I've heard that a lot in the last three years. And um, so I'm hopeful because the conversation is different. And I, I do believe that the conversation has to be different first before you can actually get a shift. Um, so from that perspective, I'm hopeful. Um, I also spent much of the last few months uh, driving around the province and going, okay, well, I came back. I came here 20 years ago or I came here 15 years ago or I came here 25 years ago. And there was so much more opportunity then. Um, we have, you know, these valleys that were, um, there was so much more old growth then than there is now. It is phenomenal what we've done in this, in my short life of working in this industry here. Um, I am, you know, we are down to the last few percent in lots of places and in some places we're, we're beyond that. So I'm, I'm also really fearful that the status quo will just kind of beat it you know, the well. I know I I've saw I also saw more logging trucks in the last three months than I've seen uh, ever on the roads. And I've talked to various different you know First Nation people on the, uh, who were out and about who who said similar things. Northern Vancouver Island. Um, there is a obviously a frankly a concerted effort. That's what I could see to um, make sure it gets logged before someone gets to save it because uh, I think the writing is on the wall and. Um, I just, I think there's a, some level of, would I call it naivety or something? I, I don't know. Um, there is a lack of on the ground change and people don't understand that every month that passes without real underground change, um, we're losing irreversible, uh, biodiversity loss mm -hmm. in these forests and and that i try not to think about that because it kind of makes you panic do you want to um set that up a little bit like what exactly like tell me a little bit about these forests like what makes them so rich in biodiversity well you know we have forests in bc of course the diversity of old growth is is huge because we have very very different forested ecosystems and in many of the drier types um both in the southern and the interior of the of the province we have almost no old growth left it's really the the opportunities uh for for the paradigm shift truly lie in the wetter ecosystems in the coastal temperate rainforest in the we have the world's only unique globally rare uh, inland temperate rainforest, um, cedar hemlock, wet cedar hemlock forests. We have the northern spruce forests, um, big structured forests that naturally had a very large amount of old growth. So, you know, they naturally had 60, 70, 80, 90% more dominated 
old growth in the natural ecosystem. And in those places, there's a relatively large amount remaining, although we have systematically harvested the most productive of all of those ecosystems. So even when there's, you know, when there's 30% left, which there is in some of the wetter ecosystems, um, there's, there's still only less than 5% of the productive, of the biggest forest types left. And we're just, we're planning to log all of it, pretty much, that's not in a park. And uh, the biodiversity associated with that is often, it can be up to 10,000 years worth of soil development that has uh, this diversity of species that we don't even know about. Um, huge carbon stores maintains habitat for this incredible large mammal diversity that we see, but all the things in between and all the functions and uh, that the forests provide, keeping the water flowing, keeping the water cool, uh, keeping the water clean, like these really basic things, allowing species to move. Uh, that's going to be even more important with climate change. Um, all of these functions and diversity that we have in these forests, uh, we're they're totally gone when we when we log them and turn them into um, into basically very simplified second growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because of the two point seven percent of the most productive big old growth forests that were remaining two years ago when you wrote the report, which is probably down to I don't know two point five percent, two point four. It's it's not like that's one big forest that's just happy. It's like it's they're all little bits kind of fragmented that's all right. over. Like, tell me, like, what's the issue with habitat fragmentation like this? And like, especially in an era of climate, like, what's the big deal about that? Yeah, well, it's um, the amount of forest of old forest that is is the most important thing in terms of um, because because if you're an old growth dependent species. Um, you have to move from A to B, and what we have is an extremely fragmented system. You know, you and I were chatting about even meeting here on Vancouver Island, and we we're looking for some old forest to have this conversation in, and um, here we are in a park um, surrounded by stumps. Right. And um, so, <laughs> you know, um, the remaining old. Um, so in the in the wetter areas where there is more remaining, um, you still drive for hours at lower, well, up to the mountaintops. Even it's it's kind of amazing. Um, with with these with scattered um, patches of old remaining, and uh, they they don't provide a connected functional uh, forest ecosystem so that things can move. And I you know. I think people are always going, well, how much you need and, and you know, how many nest boughs do, does a marble marlet population need? You know, that is such a reductionist way of thinking about the forest. It's very sciencey and it's very driven towards driving to minimums. Like, okay, how many do you need? I, I've heard that say, well, where do you want your medicinal, medicinal plants exactly? And we can put them there for you and then you can have them. Well, Ecosystems don't work like that. We we don't have we, we have no idea how these function these forests really function, and we do know the closer to the natural distribution of forests, the, the better the chance that they're functional and resilient. Um, but 
we have moved so far from the natural distribution um, and fragmented the forest so much that um, they aren't functioning. People across the province are concerned about large species disappearing. Um, you know, we've we are one of the richest nations in the world, and we have pretty much wiped out mountain caribou um, from this landscape and old growth associated species um, by fragmenting the forest. And on paper, there is enough forest to maintain a population of caribou, but we didn't plan for, you know, we didn't think about fragmenting it and how are those species going to move. And we also ignored the fact that they needed low elevation old growth in bad years. So we didn't even manage for that. Um, and yeah, and then we're supposedly surprised that we have extirpated each of these little populations one by one. You know, I I live in a town where there used to be a mountain caribou population and now there isn't. And we should be ashamed of that. And we also should be horrified. Right. Well, it goes back to this concept of shifting baselines where it's like, you know, the state of California has a grizzly bear on their flag. The last grizzly was shot there in 1920 or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, so if you were growing up in Nelson now, you would never even know that there was a caribou population. Exactly. What's it like as we kind of move forward and like, you know, you and I have been talking about like these big stumps of the furs around us that are rotting out. Like as soon as those are gone, there's really going to be no trace of what kind of forest existed here. And you've talked, I've heard you talk about um, your idea of ghost trees. Um, yeah. I mean, humans, we are in a, we're in a crisis situation where we're degrading all of our ecosystems and um, forgetting that they existed as they did a moment ago. And that is, I don't, I don't usually think much in terms of human population health, but um, even from a, from a, from a simple human perspective, um, that is bad. It is bad for us. We're heating up the water. We're losing water. We know that water is going to be this huge issue going forward with as the planet heats up, and yet we take no notice of that. And so each time the baseline shifts, um, we become uh, even more at risk from the deg degradation of the ecosystem and um, humans have become disconnected and um, you know that is we know we know that there is emotional and other impacts associated with that and but you know from a fundamental um, maintaining climate climate stability for example um, these forests have a huge role to play in that and it, when we lose sight of what we've lost then we're really on a um uh in a in a very poor we just cannot manage well in that situation mm -hmm. and that's where your concept of ghost trees comes in that's right so a ghost tree um if you would like to summarize that yeah I guess. yeah yeah because <laughs> well, i feel like you're gonna do it better than i can <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, you know, Karen, Dave, and I did this analysis of, of the state of the forest. And one of the difficult things is um, 
we've logged a phenomenal amount of the forest. For instance, we found this amazing quote, uh, and it's actually in one of our reports that's on the government website uh, that probably nobody read because nobody writes, reads reports anymore. But um, Certainly not ones on the government <laughs> website. <laughs> but, you know, the old growth... Um, uh, technical advisory panel when we, we we have some we have some 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 numbers and stuff around this issue on there um, which you can download from the government website but um, so if you're looking at how many how much old growth there is today um, you can't if you're looking at the associated risk associated with that with the amount today you have to look at each individual ecosystem which has its own disturbance regime and has its own natural amount of old growth. And you have to compare it to what would have been there historically. And, you know, in ecosystems like this, we're sitting on the east side of Vancouver Island right now, um, there is basically no old growth left. But every forest that you walk in right now, you can see the stumps of the massive Douglas fir and massive cedar that used to be here. Um, those ghost trees... You have to somehow factor that into the analysis to understand um, what has happened to the ecosystem and to understand that you know the the effect that's that's had that's been had on the ecosystem, and um, so we call them ghost trees, and um, we analyzed for them by looking at the productivity of um, the forest and looked at the fact that the most productive sites have no old growth left on them often or very little. That's where the 3% number came from. And then, you know, the least productive ecosystems with the little trees, those are all still in the data uh, because we haven't harvested them and mo they're typically within the natural range and doing quite well. But those forests have completely different functions and there's nothing wrong with those forests. I'm not saying that they're bad forests or not important forests. They very much are important forests, um, but they're completely different forests. And you cannot, even within an ecosystem, you cannot lump those very different forests together. Um, I was going to tell an anecdote about uh, Cathedral Grove. So it was the, it's called the Macmillan Grove because uh, Macmillan, it, who started Macmillan Blodell, um, said, uh, "Oh, we should set aside um, some of these some of these trees so that there are some left, uh, so that people can remember what they look like." And um, there's a McLean's article uh, that we reference on one of our reports that says something to the effect of um, Cathedral Grove was not the largest and not by far not the most magnificent of uh, the. Douglas fir forest, but we but we decided we should set it aside now because um, because it was the best that remained at that time. That McLean's article was written, and I I'm going to get the date wrong, but I think it was 1936, could have been 1938. But at that time, Macmillan noted that the sliding baseline had occurred, that all the best Douglas fir were already gone at that point and so um you know there are no intact douglas fir forests uh, anymore and yet that used to be the dominant ecosystem uh, in mm -hmm. the south coast right 
Yeah, I mean, you know, of the biggest and largest protected trees now, there were cookies of trees larger than that that were going around on trains to, you know, to museums and to circuses. It's like these freak show trees. That's right. And now they're just non-existent. That's right. I actually heard a different version of that, though. I heard that Macmillan set that aside because apparently he was a fairly religious guy and his um, priest at his church actually was like, said something to him about like those trees Maybe they, maybe they are like the last of the best, like you need to protect, protect those trees. So he did, not willingly, but he did under guidance of oh. his priest. And that's why it's called Cathedral Grove, because oh. they're God's trees. Right. <laughs> Excellent. I yeah. hadn't heard that one. That's that's what was relayed to me. Man, I have, I have so many questions. I'm just kind of going through <laughs> this. And I know that you are in a time crunch, so I'm going to try to be quick about all this. Um. Yeah, I, I guess going back to the the biodiversity thing, because if we can kind of focus on this one subject here, um, that's what I find so misleading about all of the wide breadth of information that comes out, um, especially the industry's kind of skewed numbers where forest is forest and old growth forest is old growth forest. But like you said, every type of forest ecosystem is different. And a lot of the old growth forest that we have is high alpine areas or it's in bog areas. It's these undesirable logging locations. And of the stuff that was highly desirable, we've already decimated that. And so these isolated pockets of old growth are separated from are separated by, you know, traditionally clear-cut methods in our like western society. And those forests, everybody says, oh, trees are going to grow back. Like that will be a forest in 100 years. In 250 years, it'll be an old growth forest because that's what the government has deemed as an old growth forest ecosystem. But even within that action set, like clear cutting does drastic things to the hydrology of the area. Like it reduces the amount of water in the soil. So the forest that grows back isn't necessarily going to be even the same kind of Western hemlock cedar dominant type. Like what does this mean in an era of climate change going forward? Like how do we, how do we work to protect forests, these kind of forests in the interim so that we can actually regrow second or second growth forests with old growth characteristics to increase this biodiversity at a time when we desperately need it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the remaining old growth, uh, the kind of the refugia um, systems that have that diversity and often they are fragmented enough that they may well, I mean, I, how many times do I spend standing in some tiny, tiny patch of forest on the edge of some river somewhere that's some ecological reserve or some, you know, is, you know, is less than 10 hectares. It's yeah, it's like it's 50 meters wide. Crazy. So we don't even understand whether, you know, how much has been lost from, from, from those remaining patches. But what is there, you know, the, uh, the diversity of species that is there has, gives us some hope that there's the possibility of, of, um, regenerating forests, but that look like the previous ones. But the chances of that with climate change, well, the chances of that, I mean, you answered your own question in there. The way that we log and the way that we have harvested has really gets rid of that. And our whole mindset of how forestry works has been to always simplify, simplify, let's if there's a deciduous species, let's kill it, let's spray it, let's cut it, let's get rid of it. We have the old glyphosate issue. Yeah, we have all this research that shows that that's bad. Even if you only care about growing conifers, that you know the deciduous understory it has a role to play in the growing of the conifer trees. And yes, it might slow down the first ten years, but um, it 
gives you a more resilient forest over time. You know, we know these things. They've been in the literature. They've been advocated for for the last 30 years. And again, we have paid no heed because it doesn't play well into the game of pretending that we've reached free to, free to grow and pretending that there is this much wood coming in the forest. Um, we use I mean, I'm off track. That's not what you asked me, but I'm going to say this anyway because, <laughs> you know, we pretend that the future forest, we have these productivity curves that say, that measure the fastest, cleanest growing trees. And then we apply that. It's called the PSPL, the site productivity layer. We apply that to all the forest and we're making a, an assumption that the future forest is going to grow 40% faster than the last forest and um you know there's some nuances in that but we play these games so that the timber supply models are going to tell us that all the trees are going to live there's going to be very little individual tree mortality completely contrary to what we're seeing on the ground we haven't we don't include um fire the increase in fire in those models we, we say oh we'll adjust if it all burns we'll adjust afterwards we you know we make all of these assumptions all to keep the harvest rate up when um that is the driving thing that has to change in order for us to switch it around and manage for ecosystem health um i now i've gone so off track i can't remember what the original question was but <laughs> well I'm, I'm glad that you kind of brought it that way because that's um, an interesting thing that i've always found so funny about the way that we operate forestry on Turtle Island is that we're using all these kind of silvicultural practices derived in Germany. So that chart you're talking about, like that was something that nobody had any scientific backing to. Yeah. They're just like, oh yeah, here's a graph. We're going to plant these trees and this is how they're going to grow. And this is how we're going to set our annual allowable cuts for the next 70 years. And let's see how it is. And now we, across the province and all of Cascadia, across like the nation, really, you have this horrible level of forests that are understocked based on the stock that they were expecting to get 70 years ago, 40 years ago. Like, so we've just created this system where we're, we're seeing it in real time. We're seeing all these, um, these things that all these predictions of how much timber supply we would have all of a sudden we're not reaching that. And we're having to lean more on the production of old growth. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, I was on just north of Vancouver Island and they were actually, you know, they were harvesting old growth, massive ancient forests. And um, at the same time, they're harvesting these tiny, tiny poles um, that are completely overstocked where the the forest is going nowhere. It's kind of is stagnated. It's, it's, it's fallen into this trough and it can't get out um, because it was really badly managed and somebody wanted it to be a tree farm and um, screwed it up over huge swaths of the land base. So th that is resetting even the timber supply projections, as you're saying. And, um, you know, it's, it's a disaster out there. You know, it's a disaster, frankly, from a timber management perspective, um, because, you know, if you're managing a household, you, you don't let, you don't eat everything in the cupboard right away. <laughs> you right. save a little. I just went on a right. kayak trip for eight days. We had nine days food. In fact, we had 10 days food because it's really dumb to not plan with some budget to, to have to, yeah but we do completely the reverse all these models they push 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 the optimization models they assume that we can get the best 
all the time. It's how we lost the cod on the East Coast. It's why, you know, now we have a mountain pine beetle outbreak that is caused by climate change or exacerbated by climate change, but it could have been, it would have been something else, right? There's always something. We always know there's always something. Nobody planned for that. And so now we have a 40 year timber supply gap, midterm timber supply gap. So Williams Lake or Prince George, they're sitting in this decimated landscape with no jobs and no moose. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of that speaks to like, yeah, from a timber timber supply perspective, we've been coming short on that for sure. But also like all the ecological problems that that creates, like exactly. all those naturally regenerated hemlock forests that are super tight um, here on the coast anyway, like that's what's burning up in these fires because yep. that's what's creating the canopy fires and spreading rapidly. And the mountain pine beetle, that was like a good portion of that or was pine forests that were cut and replanted and were of similar age. And now they're susceptible to that's right. pine beetle spread because they're that's all... Right. I could ramble about it. Oh, yeah. Know. No, I mean, and you know, there's the endless um kind of rhetoric of things that don't make any sense but seem to get legs and run around so one of them is you should cut your old growth because it's going to burn oh or it's unproductive it's panic let's panic and you know it makes no sense because if that old growth standards withstood the last fire regime for the last 400 years or a thousand years or five thousand years um it's likely to stay there so it's in a landscape position that's good and it also you have never walked into an old growth forest and thought oh it's warmer than it was outside you know these forests are cool you know 10 degrees cooler on on a hot day and no they burn less and there's science on that and yet there are folks out there spreading the alternative rumor and saying oh we need to cut it all now before it burns and it it just it doesn't make any science sense and it it doesn't make management sense and it certainly doesn't make ecosystem health sense well and i've seen that too with um, a lot of fire buffers and fire thinning they're doing um going into these like overstocked forests and then still taking the biggest and the best old growth trees trying to thin it out and make it more fire resilient but even that's just taking the most market worthy trees out of these ecosystems it's just another loophole Exactly. It is just another loophole. And the, the only way out is um, is the paradigm shift uh, where we view the forest as something different that provide services that, you know, keep the water on the hillsides and, and all of that. And because if we don't shift the mental framework, and there are many foresters in the province uh, and many managers in the province who have the shift who, who already know this, and I talk to a lot of them, and there are also an astonishingly large number who are living in the 1970s. It, it, it remains perpetually shocking to me um, how uneducated people are around ecosystems and the value of ecosystems, and yet they push as though their job is to district managers i i know some personally they push as though their job is to maintain the timber industry and um i i i'm always at a loss as to why that has been uh the way the forest industry has developed in the province it we, we, this should be a public a true public interest uh agency that 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 puts these other values first and now we've said we're going to do that um, I'm interested to see 
how that plays out. Well, I mean, isn't there... So you can have two different blocks managed by two different forest managers with different perspectives, different philosophies, if you will, on how to manage it. Are there no um, like policy incentives to like incentivize a more ecological or like well-rounded style of management versus that kind of old school timber supply management? Yeah, well, that's what we need to bring in. We, we need to make it pay to do more with less. I mean, that and, and it's possible to do that. And there's there's, you know, first of all, we need to disincentivize shipping rough law, rough cut timber out of the province, right, right there, so that we are getting the jobs from. You know, it's all about enabling. We we know how to do the forest health piece. We just don't do it because we're so focused on timber volume. We're not focused on job value or timber value. We're interested in timber volume, and so we need to incentivize well disincentivize the bad things um we need to disincentivize cutting to stream banks you know it should be it should actually be illegal to do these things uh, people don't understand that that it's not illegal to it's not illegal to make species extirpated which is kind of amazing um it's not illegal to uh in a way, we have such a extraordinarily perverse set of wording in in the legislation. So there's things like material adverse impact. You're not allowed to have a material adverse impact. Okay, wh- what is that? Well, actually, the definition of that is whatever the policy says it is. So your material adverse impact, if it says you can log something, you can put a oil well, for instance, in an old growth management area. Well, because that's allowed it's not classed as a material adverse impact. These circular and extraordinarily obtuse uh, legislative pieces that were written by, well, somebody clever, but not somebody interested <laughs> who was interested in uh, actually maintaining the intent of things. We, we need to shift the balance so that we're interested in actually maintaining these values. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. is like the, the whole industry was established a certain way and even with what you're mentioning like after the 90s that kind of amalgamation of like or the conglomerates of uh logging companies owning massive tenures and the shutting down of local mills and you have these big mills that operate in like whole regions like that and and then in order to keep that mill alive and operating you have to have a constant supply of timber which doesn't necessarily allow for any innovative or different ways of thinking about how to manage that timber you kind of have to keep a minimum uh, annual allowable cut, if you will, to like flow into those in order to maintain the status quo of resources and jobs. But like you, you've said before, like how what what's the job to tree ratio here in BC, and how can we be doing it better? Yeah, well, we have you know the lowest jobs per per tree cut uh, anywhere in Canada. You just have to have to look at StatsCan um, to see those numbers. And, uh, you know, we have, the number is actually probably less than one, but I usually say it's less than two to make sure I'm not not wrong, but that's, it's really low. Two jobs per cubic meter. Um, the Scandinavian countries are is really that, high. Is that per cubic meter of timber? Paula? Yes, that's yeah. right. And a, and a cubic meter is about uh, a telegraph pole, a mm-hmm. telephone pole worth. And um, so that creates two jobs here in BC. Yeah. And in Scandinavia, it's 20, 30. Wow. Yeah. Where else in um, 
in Canada. You said it's it, the lowest in BC. That's, but... it's the, so BC has the lowest jobs per cubic meter compared to the rest of Canada as well. So they do better in Ontario. They do better across across Canada than we do here. And it's because we have not changed... Um, kind of haven't changed what we're doing here. We're just cutting down trees and thinking a two by four is the answer, uh, primarily. And of course, there are some good examples. So there are some local mills in the Kootenays, for instance, who really do try and they try and get the right mill and the right log in the right in the same place. And so they get more value. Um, but we haven't done that switch to the need to do more with less. That's a crucial part of that. And, you know, if I if I was in charge, oh, am I not in charge? No, I'm not in charge. Uh, but if I was in charge, you know, I would cut the timber supply in half immediately. I would actually make sure that we maintain these ecological values because this is this global uniqueness is phenomenon. But at the same time, I would um, assign half of that timber to value added companies and you could apply for it um it doesn't right now the majors are in charge of what happens to the wood out there and so you know that they don't allow the development of value added i've talked to quite i've in my life it's been a very interesting last two years i've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people who are interested in these solutions and people want to invest 20 million dollars in a local relatively um small or mid-sized value-added facility but cannot get guaranteed wood flow. So that's that's what that is about. So take it away from those big companies who frankly are going to go when it's gone anyway and shift it to this value-added piece so that those companies can truly invest. And there can be some old growth logging but it honestly nowhere nothing should be clear cut harvested so that you could have a period of transition but but you need to reduce the harvest significantly in those places to maintain the vast majority of the remaining old forest that's out there for its carbon stores and you know the world is looking for to pay to keep forests like this standing up you know the 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 possibility of carbon credit uh, financing to maintain some of these values. There is lots of schemes being developed worldwide for, for, for carbon and biodiversity financing. Um, you know, I have some concerns about the idea that, that those things would allow the fossil fuel industry to co continue, um, but it's, it's also relatively uh, simple to make sure that you don't sell your carbon credits to... Um, people who are exacerbating the climate somewhere else, like climate neutral, is is problematic in itself, and that's a that's a whole other conversation. But you know there are these opportunities, and we're logging this forest for almost for so little public gain. And First Nations are, in my view, being uh, treated yet again unfairly, being handed a tiny fraction of the value. Instead of looking at the bigger picture and uh, developing um, the the more jobs piece combined with other financing mechanisms, um, the world will 
taxpayers in British Columbia to keep these amazing forests standing, and yet we're racing to the bottom of the curve to, to log them before that gets developed. We're doing our very best to make sure that doesn't happen. Especially in an era when like, we've committed, quote-unquote, to UNDRIP, and a lot of the, the relations with First Nations are still just kind of smoke and mirrors. It's the same consent by coercion. Um, when like these nations have been left impoverished by like 100-plus years of colonization and then are all of a sudden given two relatively minuscule choices. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's deeply problematic. Uh, you know, I work for a lot of nations uh, and I, you know, it's not my place to speak on their behalf and to talk about the specifics, but I can tell you that the way these policies are being rolled out are, um, they're yet another way of, of creating uh, divisiveness between nations and uh, giving them really a Hobson's choice that is no choice. Um, you have to have uh, an alternative, you know, to the industrial model that we have in place um, so that you're not forcing nations into choosing between things that they have many, many, many times before said they don't want to be. Right. And, and I think it's worth noting, too, that um, in the conversation around maintaining the status quo of logging that industry commonly makes, you know, it's all done for the sake of jobs and economy in these small communities. But like you've said, like the number of people actually employed is so, f so minimal. Um, and then at the same time, these are publicly traded co companies whose primary goals or motivation is acting on behalf of their shareholders. And you can look across the board at the historical, um, like just over the past 20 years at companies like Canfor and stuff, and they're like investing in um, hardwood mills down in Oklahoma. Yeah. And yeah. they're slowly pulling out of BC. So while at the same time when they are like saying you can't end old growth logging here in BC because it's going to reduce jobs and it's going to close down these small towns, they're actively engaging and pulling out and going elsewhere in the world because it's better for their shareholders. Yep. There's only a yep. No, nope, no comment. All right. There is no comment. To that. Um, <laughs> three questions here. Cause I know, I know you have to go. So, um, if you could tell me a little bit, like what are the barriers to progress and what can we do to kind of keep pressure on and maintain progress? Like what are the changes that you need to see or that you think should be happening right now? That was, a, that was that was a lot of questions all in one question. Uh, I've got the, two more of those. the barriers, I don't know what the barriers are. The barriers are fear. I think the political barriers are fear. Um, I know that the world of people out there is, you know, that we are the population, and it's you know it's probably in every in every community on some level split between those who um, are scared of change. And those who are scared of not change, and uh, I'm definitely in the category that I'm scared of not changing because I see truly dire consequences if we don't. And um, you know, we haven't talked at all about the actual, just intrinsic value of these, a phenomenal forest. I'm sitting here talking as a scientist, but as a human being on this planet, like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Like, so we. We're frightened of making these changes, and yet humans never make change unless they have to. So what we need is leadership. And we need leadership from government. And they've said they're going to do these things, and yet there's a lot of talk 
I have stood personally in a lot of deferral blocks that we identified that government said should be deferred, that have not been deferred, uh, that have been logged, that, um, you know, I think people don't understand the rate and scale of harvesting and um, they don't understand that, for instance, First Nations may not have time to have responded to some of these things, um, that they're being put in, in a terrible position of contrast yeah, between each other. Um, you know, so we've started down this path of change, but we haven't actually really made most of the changes yet that we've talked about. And the time is now, right? We, we have to get on with this. We have to stop talking about it and stop playing games around it and do what we know to be the right thing to do. So that's, that's what I think needs to happen. Um, I don't know what the second half of the question was now. You, uh, that, that's really it. We need to get on with doing what we've been talking about for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this is the second old growth strategic review. That's right. And they say they're going to put out some other new consultation with the public, like really, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm trying to understand that change is slow and difficult, but my frustration level personally is, uh, it's pretty high. Because um, I, I watched this before. I watched this happen 30 years ago. And, and as we talked about earlier, you know, change was coming. And then we went back into the dark ages. And we just cannot afford to do that. Right. Well, the change that needs to happen takes a really long time to implement. And the way that things continue to move just happens so fast. Yeah, that's right. So what can the average person do to... I guess you kind of answered this at the beginning. You said you didn't know, but if you had, I, I guess not what the average person can do to um, maybe just thinking about this differently to not only keep pressure on the governments and stuff, but is there anything that people can do uh, in their own day-to-day lives? Like if you're a local builder, is that like, would you advise people to like look into local, local mills and stuff? Like, Oh yeah. Value I mean, added timber. Yeah. No, that's, that's totally true. I mean, I just built a house and I, bought as much of the wood as I could from the local community forest that actually gets, uh, they said, uh, 11 jobs per cubic meter. Which is great. Harrod Proctor Community Forest, right? Um, And so we need to push for those things happening. Of course, they they do happen from the bottom, um, but they really need leadership to make them happen from the top. Like, so, you know, um, I fear what's coming is kind of the war in the woods of 93 but worse because people are more desperate and the situation is more desperate so um you know i think that's coming i think fairy creek is will not be the last of the people on the ground being active but you know i think there is there are there are it is very true that forests can provide a sustainable resource um, if we do it well, we just haven't done it well. So there's nothing wrong with wood as a as a good product. And yes, it's better than steel and concrete. And we need to think like that. Um, but we need to shift so radically in how we how we create the product that um, you know the amount of waste that happens and and you know all of those pieces. I mean, that's an endless conversation, but. Uh, definitely individual life choices are important but making sure government understands that this is important to you uh is 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 really important 
Um, and I guess I'll make this my final question, but based on what you see from like the younger generation of foresters and stuff coming up, are you optimistic to there being a truly sustainable forest industry that we can create in the future? Oh dear. He asked me a question at the end and I'm supposed to end on something positive, I'm sure. And uh, I can, I that can take not, that back. That and was you can... not great. Uh, no, I'm not positive at all about that because I see terrible, a terrible education system where um, we learn about... Even still, you don't think yeah. it's evolved at all? Uh, it's evolved, but it's not evolved enough. Right. Uh, you know, I talk to people in their 30s. I had somebody the other day tell me that I didn't need to worry about climate change because um, it was covered in ice uh, 10,000 years ago. Right. Like, and that was a Those forester. Arguments. yeah. Uh, you know, that was kind of a bit mind-blowing to me. Um, I speak with young foresters all the time and I had someone the other day tell me that the old growth forest is decadent and must be harvested because it's a forest health issue Still. and that person was in their 30s Wow. Um, and I also see a lot of people who don't think like that um, but we have a huge swath of mid-level bureaucrats who grew up in a different world and haven't figured out that it's changed and they need to get with the times and um yeah i i don't know so i i try to maintain positivity because you might as well and uh because my two children who are 15 and 19 um because i'm scared for them i genuinely am scared for them and um so I need to be positive about the fact that change is possible. And I think we have a huge, big thing to happen. And I think we need real leadership. And I, I see it everywhere. I see the potential for it everywhere. And I see that the people with the power um, still often are not those people. And I, I, uh, I wonder where we're going. I try and maintain my positivism. Otherwise, uh, yeah, the world's yeah. a lot darker of a place if you're not positive, <laughs> not a little bit optimistic. <laughs> Is there anywhere people can go to learn more information on this stuff to get more out of it? Any, any people you'd like to plug doing great things? Oh my goodness. There's lots of fantastic people. Of course there are, um, well, you know, there is a government website on old growth. Uh, and, um, I say that, um, because, it has changed and there's been some acknowledgement that there are different forest ecosystems. We don't yet manage for them, <laughs> but mm -hmm. noticing that they exist is really good. That's a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, we created a map that is up there that anybody can download and use. Uh, well, actually you need to have GIS, unfortunately, but um, that takes all the old growth forests and, and divides it into size classes. So for instance, for every ecosystem, it identifies the small old growth and the large old growth. And that's super useful in your local region. Um, people don't know that it exists, but I think that's, you know, that's pretty useful. And uh, uh, always being as informed as you can be is, is the way to go. So there's lots and lots of resources uh, on, on, on the values and amazing uh, things that are in our forests. And I highly recommend a walk in the forest because... Uh, I just spent the last week uh, 
paddling around Brooks Peninsula and, and looking at that ecosystem is actually a relatively low productivity piece of Vancouver Island, no doubt. Why it was set aside as a park, it's also biodiverse uh, and phenomenal endemic species out on the point, but but um, it was the it was absolutely amazing to me because everywhere I looked, I could see the natural diversity in the forest and there was old growth it was all every single piece of it was old growth forest and it went from little tiny trees to trees that were six meters across um all naturally interspersed with each other uh, i saw more bears there than i've ever seen anywhere um stumbled across bear dens every time I walked into the forest. The diversity was phenomenal. The niches and the microsites were amazing. I highly recommend finding some old growth forest and going and walking in it and, and looking at the amazement of nature. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. For Appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I know it's been a long day, but hopefully you'll be able to get a nice sunset paddle in here. <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks again to everybody for joining in on yet another episode of the Nerdy About Nature podcast. Really appreciate every one of you for tuning in here. Um, you know, it's great to hear of so many people being so receptive to a lot of really great information about the world that we all share so we can create a better world for all of us here. Um, you know, if I'll just take another moment here and plug this, you know, Nerdy About Nature, it's an independent passion project that requires quite a bit of energy, effort, and work to make all come together. So if you're enjoying this stuff, you can do me a favor by liking it up rating it up, sharing it around to all your friends and family, supporting it by getting some merch at nerdyaboutnature.com or ideally by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature because that gives me the kind of financial stability to just keep putting more energy into this and growing this and ideally, you know, getting to a point when I can hire people to help with research and writing and all that stuff. But it takes a lot of work right now and it's just me. So um, yeah, if you're enjoying these podcasts and all the Instagram stuff, all the fun educational videos, all the fun facts, we'd really appreciate your support. Support. And if not, no worries. Just stoked to have you here anyway because, you know, the more people know and learn about this stuff and this world that we all share, then the more people there are acting in ways to, you know, protect it and keep it great. So, yeah. Thank you all very much for tuning in. And I will check you here in a couple weeks when I have another great podcast lined up. Take care. <laughs>